This is episode 247 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners who sign up to be our patrons. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Ailsa Grant Ferguson of the University of Brighton, UK, and I'm working on a project about Susanna Hall, Shakespeare's daughter. And another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. So he wrote that men do die extraordinarily in this voyage, and he compared the company's ships to coffins. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In April of 1601, four ships set out from England with hopes of establishing trade with Asia. Remembered by history as the first voyage of the East India Trading Company that launched a momentous relationship between what would become Britain and Asia, the first as well as the subsequent three voyages by this group were wrought with danger, disease, and completed at great personal sacrifice. On all of these journeys, the captains and sailors battled illness, poor living conditions, and perilously low morale. While the East India Company launched the missions with a set of rules designed to help alleviate the most significant hurdles, our guest this week, Cheryl Fury, shares in her recent publication that the human cost of these voyages remained astronomically high. Cheryl Fury is a professor of history at the University of New Brunswick and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and the Gregg Center for War and Society. She teaches courses in European and British history for Tudor Stuart England, early modern women, queenship, as well as modern Europe, especially the Holocaust and fascism. She has spent her career studying the English maritime community. You can see more about her publications and links to her work, as well as how to contact her in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Cheryl. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Cheryl, do we know what happened out in the middle of the ocean for these sailors and shipmen? Is it captain's logs or letters written home? Or what surviving records do we have that that tell us about these journeys? Well, when I was researching the Elizabethan maritime community way back in my, my grad student days, I had to scrounge for any sort of sources that told me about what sailors, unless, of course, you're researching Francis Drake, got up to. So whether they were ashore or afloat, I was very interested in that. But since I've been working on the English East India Company, I've been really blessed. So the British Library has nine miles of shelving of company records. And although there's some gaps in those records, it's really the mother load of material. So I expect I'll be luxuriating in that for the rest of my career. But my current focus is the foundational years of the company. So there's lots of correspondence between employees abroad, as well as to the company in London. And so amid discussions about trade, there's some frustrated individuals 
listing all the personal and professional failings of their coworkers and detailing what they get up to during their off hours. And that can make for some pretty spicy reading. I really love ship's journals. The company required that some officers keep journals of all that happened on each voyage. And for many of these early voyages, we have at least one journal account and sometimes more. So each journal is as individual as its writer. They can contain lots of gossip. That's the stuff that I like about who gets drunk and who mouthed off and who was punished and why. And, and other journals contain mostly navigational information and are very boring for my purposes. I'm always looking for the passages that reveal the human dynamics and tell me more about life on these grueling two to three year voyages. So in detailed journals, some of these otherwise obscure people seem to leap off the pages. And I love that. So that being said, uh, we have to read against the grain because most of the journals are kept by officers. So these accounts are usually slanted in favor of those with power and authority. I can only imagine some of the scholars that listen to our show throwing things at the computer or their phones, listening to you talk about having nine miles of company records to dig through. That's fantastic. What a wonderful treasure (laughs) trove of things to, to dig through. And I know while some of it is, as you mentioned, this this detailed information, some of the just little gold nuggets that you're bound to find there have got to be fascinating. And I know that Cheryl writes that while the East India Company planned on significant fatalities with these voyages, they also launched a 17th century health and wellness program is what Cheryl calls it. And that brought together the best practices for what people should do when they took similar voyages in the future. So Cheryl, tell us about some of these best practices. What did they institute as a matter of course for these voyages around health and wellness? So many and and probably most of those who set sail from England never returned home. So one of the men wrote about the, quote, continual dangers we are subject unto in this painful employment. So the biggest killer was disease. So scurvy was a perennial problem, given that shipboard provisions were very deficient in vitamin C. So there were various fevers and things like the bloody flux that could decimate shipboard populations. So I've calculated that mortality was probably somewhere around 60% on the first voyage, which happened from 1601 to 1603. And things weren't very much better ashore for these guys. Mortality was about 50% at the company's first trading base in Indonesia. So one of the company's long-serving and long-suffering merchants wrote from Bantam, where the, where the uh, factory, that's what they called the trading base, where the factory was. He said that he wanted to make an end to this irksome living in this place. It was pretty clear they weren't all that uh, excited about uh, Bantam. There was a critic by the name of Robert Kale that blasted the company in a scathing pamphlet in 1615 for, among other things, depleting England of its skilled maritime labor. So he wrote that men do die extraordinarily in this voyage, and he compared the company's ships to coffins. 
Now, some historians have picked up on this, and they are also very critical of the company, saying that the East India Company was negligent of their employees. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think the company was trying to keep these men fit for purpose, but the odds were really stacked against that. They were global travelers in an age that didn't facilitate that very well. They had to contend with the problem of disease and very limited means to preserve provisions. So while at sea for long periods, their diet was lacking in fresh fruits and vegetables. And disease, especially disease related to their diet, was, as I say, the biggest killer, uh, much more so than shipwrecks or adversaries that they encountered. So if you dive into the records, it's clear that the company is wrestling to find solutions for these problems. So from early on, the company is experimenting, it's researching, it's collecting, it's archiving all sorts of information, especially when it comes to things like where to provision and where to go ashore for what they called refreshing, which was spending weeks ashore and they would have fresh food to recover their health. The company also hired a surgeon and a preacher for every fleet to tend to bodies and souls. Although, having said that, most of the time, the, the preachers and the surgeons were often casualties during the course of the voyage. But the most important development in the first decade of the company, the first decade of the 17th century, was using citrus fruit to ward off or to cure scurvy, which is vitamin C deficiency. So General James Lancaster, who led the first fleet, and the men on his ship were given lemon juice. And Lancaster made sure that he would dole some out daily to the men on his ship. And that made a really big difference until it ran out. The company wanted subsequent fleets to, to follow Lancaster's lead. But sadly, they often used limes instead of lemons or, or oranges, and limes aren't nearly as effective. So the company's shipboard orders were a work in progress. They're learning as they go. And in terms of their health and wellness program, and, and I admit that's a rather anachronistic term to, to be talking about when we're, we're talking about the 17th century. It's a pretty modern term. It, well, but it helps us understand kind of the scope that you're talking about. So yes, maybe anachronistic, but helpful, I think. I hope so. I hope so. Because I stand by it. I do stand by it. So they're trying to improve cleanliness on the ships. They're making efforts to get the men as much fresh food as possible. They're finding uh, safe spaces to reprovision and recuperate abroad. And the company in London hired mostly very qualified men by the standards of the day to treat body and soul. And by the second decade, the company takes a big step in hiring a surgeon general. So they're really spending a lot of this time establishing that global infrastructure that you're referring to uh, for international sea travel and exactly what it means to be a, a global ocean traveling merchant. That's in incredible to see it sort of evolving all as they're creating these pathways. And as a result of these voyages, England did, as you mentioned, establish their first Surgeon General. Cheryl, who was this person? Who was the first Surgeon General for England? And what was the process for establishing this position? So the first Surgeon General was John Woodall, who was an experienced and a well-traveled surgeon. 
And the company took the decision to appoint a Surgeon General in 1612 when the company was transitioning to a joint stock company, which meant it would be sending out more and more fleets. So presumably, it realized that such high mortality, especially if they were going to add more and more voyages, wasn't sustainable. So Woodall would oversee things like uh, the health of all the company's employees and to ensure surgeons' chests were kitted out properly with instruments and medicines. And he was to standardize the contents. So there wasn't, as, as one report claimed, kitchen stuff in them and various sketchy substances masquerading as medicine. So while he was working for the company, he wrote a very influential text called The Surgeon's Mate which was published in 1617. And that would go through many editions. And he wrote a number of other texts as well. So he's trying to assist surgeons. He's trying to make them more effective at their craft. And he was also an advocate for treating scurvy with lemon juice. So Woodall had a number of different posts and he worked at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, for example. And he would become an examiner of surgeons for the Navy and the Army. So I think this is another indicator that the company is really trying a number of things to keep its workforce healthy. And Woodell, I mean, it, it's still pretty basic at this point, but uh, he, he would lay the foundations for the company's medical service in the future. Cheryl writes that many of the health issues encountered on board ship that would become the responsibility of the surgeon to deal with were the product of poor diet, as John Woodall seems to be aware of with his promotion of lemons. But Cheryl, I pity the surgeon who was held responsible for fixing something so seemingly outside his control, since he couldn't very well import citrus fruits to the ship if they're out in the middle of the ocean and now they're out of lemons. He can't go and pick some and bring them to the men. So what were some of the most common ailments encountered on board ship with lack of, of citrus fruit and vitamin C? And how did they address them when they are at sea and they may not have the resources that they need? Yeah, I pity the surgeons too. I would not want that job at all. Most of the diseases were well beyond any expertise or knowledge they had. And what's more, surgeons, as I mentioned, were often casualties themselves. So the surgeon's apprentice or the surgeon's mate would often be bumped into the top job if he was still alive, whether he was ready or not. A surgeon on the first voyage tried to poison himself. We can't say for sure what prompted him to do that, but he must have been overwhelmed with all the fatalities on, on the voyage. And this is an age that is horrified by suicides, it has to be said. So self-murder or, or suicide was a felony under the law, as well as being considered a grave sin. So the poor man, the poor surgeon, must have been in a total state. And he ended up being uh, demoted. He was stripped of, of his post. And his superiors contemplated marooning him. And, uh, you know, surgeons were important, it must be said, for morale, if nothing else. But nursing care, like, and it was often palliative care, was, was done by one's crewmates. So crewmates who nursed the sick and dying, 
You see them popping up in, in sailor shipboards will that often they're given bequests and, and some sort of, um, sometimes it's monetary, sometimes it could be clothing or, or something else. And so surgeons don't really get a shout out in those wills nearly as often as the crewmates who nursed the, the dying man. So I found that interesting. But as I was saying, scurvy is one of the big problems because of the lack of fresh fruit and vegetables in the standard maritime diet. It wasn't just the East India Company. It was the standard maritime diet was, was deficient. And they didn't have any understanding of vitamins yet or what we would consider a balanced diet. But those in the seafaring community are starting to grasp that there's something in that citrus for fruit that, that cured them. And General James Lancaster really points the way for the company from the time of the first voyage by administering that lemon juice to his men. And thereafter, you have company men purchasing thousands of lemons and limes when they go ashore and trying to find ways to preserve the juice. So the company in London recommended places to go ashore for refreshing in their shipboard orders that they would give to the, the commanding officer. And uh, it, it didn't really matter where the company thought they should put ashore. When sickness began to spread on shipboard, the men began to agitate to put ashore wherever they were. And there's numerous instances where they forced the issue with their officers. So there's lots of theories about what caused scurvy being bandied about at the time among seafarers, among the medical professionals. But the men understand that getting ashore for a time can help restore their health, if they're suffering from scurvy, that is. So they'd make tents. Sometimes they'd use old sails to make tents ashore and, and stay ashore for a few weeks. They'd enjoy some fresh food. And this would often help them recover if the scurvy wasn't too advanced. So then they put to sea again and until the scurvy reared its ugly head once more, and then the process would be repeated. But if vitamin C was the only challenge, the lack of vitamin C was the only problem here, I, I think the company could have preserved more of its workforce. But there were also various fevers and fluxes that bedeviled the crews. And their medical know-how had no answer for many of those afflictions. So there's, there's instances in the records of men who were suffering from fevers and they would just, you know, jump off the, the ship and drown. And that must have been incredibly, not only tragic, but, but disturbing for anybody witnessing that. And although the odds were overwhelming, the men in the company are trying to improve health and healthcare would be my, my argument. So they, they may not have all of the detailed scientific or chemical definitions for why things are going on, but they're obviously paying attention to things like the the connection between disease and what you're eating, as well as getting you know off the ship for a time and, and having some of, they're building these solutions, whether or not they understand the underlying why behind why it's working, which is interesting to see, because I'm sure that sets the foundation for what would later become the scientific reasons behind those things and the research that went into that. Now, you mentioned that they would kind of get agitated on board ship and, and sort of start making a fuss about, hey, we don't, you know, we're starting to 
feel at risk for our lives here. We need to get get off the ship. And I want to call attention to one specific instance that Cheryl writes about in her research. In 1609, there was a master of the ship named Good Hope, and the man's name was John Lufkin. And he denied shore leave to his shipmen. And when he made this decision, it resulted in drastic consequences. Cheryl, I'd like to ask you to tell John Lufkin's story here and explain his decision and his ultimate fate. Yeah, that's that's a complicated one. It, it's a fascinating and it's a tragic episode. So food insecurity was an obvious concern for all. And on company voyages, diet and diseases were the leading cause of unrest. So officers could get away with rationing provisions, cutting men back to maybe you know half their, their normal amount of, of provisions. They could get away with that for a while. But once the men really started to, to be hungry, then they would begin to murmur. That's the word that, that pops up all through various uh, texts related to, to seafaring in general. And, and it's bad when there's murmuring. It's a bad thing. So officers had to be watchful that that murmuring didn't escalate into more widespread disenchantment and, and protest. And so there was a limited window to remedy the problem. So because the basis of good order on shipboard was consensus, officers were usually receptive to petitions from their men. However, in the case of the Good Hope, this is a vessel on the fourth voyage, we have a real outlier here. So the ships of the fourth voyage lost each other in a storm. And provisions run very low. And the men of the Good Hope begin to agitate to go ashore to reprovision. So Master John Lufkin claims they'll put ashore, but he delays repeatedly. And the crew later on says that he deceives them repeatedly. So the bond between the master and his men begins to break down pretty dramatically. And the crew claimed that they were starving. And so one of the master's mates bonks poor John Lufkin on the head with a mallet and kills him. And the crew would later confess this, and they would all claim complicity in this murder mutiny. Now, most mutinies were protests for better working conditions. So they're more like strikes and, and labor relations than our Hollywoodized versions of, of mutinies. So harming the man in charge was extremely unusual. Now, there was great sympathy for protests over food insecurity, but overthrowing authority, murdering the officer in charge was crossing the Rubicon for sure. So most company officers put ashore to reprovision when they sensed shipboard relations were turning toxic. But Lufkin didn't. And then the crew carries on to rendezvous with the rest of the company's fleet. And then they confess merrily that they killed the shipmaster. So the word merrily is in the text, and it's really jarring in this account. And so I have so many questions. I wrote a, uh, a conference paper that I haven't published. At some point, perhaps I'll, I'll publish it, because I think it's a really interesting episode. Like, why didn't Lufkin put ashore? Maybe he was hoping to find the rest of the fleet first. I mean, that would make sense. But after murdering the master, why did the crew of the Good Hope seek out the rest of the company fleet? 
Why didn't they run away? And, and once they were reunited, why did they readily confess to the general? They weren't they had... obviously afraid of any of any you know consequence of that confession. I think, and and given yeah, given the time frame, I mean, this is a non-starter. I mean, it, it's it would be easy to defend uh, a mutiny, maybe not easy, but there would be a sympathy for a mutiny over food insecurity. But the rest of it, absolutely not. So here they are. They they readily confess to the general that they had killed the master. They all claim complicity for this. And this is the man who has the power to execute them. You know, why didn't they say that Lufkin had died of sickness or he had fallen overboard? They could have invented all sorts of stories. And given that there was a number of months that passed that all the ships were all scattered because of the storm, it would have been believable. It would have been quite easy to get away with this, I think. And and yet they they confessed. And so yeah, I mean, this is why didn't they run away? The, even once they've confessed and they realize that that the poor general is horrified by this and the people listening to this are, are generally horrified by by their confession, they had time to to run away then and they didn't. And and that word merrily just really gets me. And maybe I'm I'm making too much of it. I mean, but at the time that I was reading it, I thought they've lost their minds. It does sound really surprising. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, I, my my closest reference for understanding 17th century maritime culture has to be the film Pirates of the Caribbean. And But I think yeah. about how they talk about this unwritten pirate code. It's <laughs> almost like there was some kind of unwritten code of honor that Lufkin so grossly crossed a line on that the sailors weren't concerned at all about how their actions would be received by the the leadership or the other sailors in the in the fleet which is yeah it's shocking. really yeah. it is shocking and strange and i i think they had lost their minds i think that they really were starving just like cabin fever no, I think it's malnutrition. I think they were suffering from malnutrition, in particular vitamin B and C deficiencies, which impairs your cognitive functions. So I think malnutrition that seems reasonable. Yeah, may have messed with their decision-making ability. It maybe even Lufkin too, but but certainly his his men. And I can't prove this at all. It's just my theory. But the whole tragedy is so far outside the norm. And and I've looked into a lot of mutinies, and this is pretty wild. Well, in addition to physical health and, and mental health, we also talked about general cleanliness being held in high esteem, along with the morale on board ship was also monitored by the leadership there. In one instance, General Keeling turned to dramatic stage productions to keep his men entertained on board ship and apparently to help boost their their mental happiness. I would hope that would have played a role. Cheryl, how did General Keeling boost the morale of his sailors? I think commanders like Keeling are trying everything that they can think of to keep men physically and mentally healthy. And this is possibly the first really global production of, of Shakespeare. And there's some doubters. There's some people that, that don't think that things uh, unfolded like this. But I think Keeling did have his men perform it, we're, we're told two of Shakespeare's plays on, on the third voyage and Hamlet and Richard II, I believe. And I think they probably acted out at least parts of the plays and, and quite possibly the whole thing. In their letters and journals, 
company men repeat the phrase, this long and tedious passage or this long and tedious voyage. You see that from all sorts of writers. And I'm not shocked that commanders are being creative in their attempts to relieve the tedium and to, to keep the men from getting into trouble, more dangerous pursuits, because left to their own devices, they'll try to get drunk, they'll gamble away their wages, they'll fight with each other, and, and you know, that doesn't serve anybody's purpose. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did perform Shakespeare's play for, for some of those dignitaries that they encountered en route to, to Asia. There's lots of examples of sailors dancing and singing and, and playing musical instruments to, to entertain themselves and to entertain others. And I think for company men, it was about occupying themselves and, and perhaps performing Englishness to those in foreign lands. Now, despite these efforts to boost morale, keeping order on board ship was often a dangerous affair. Cheryl, what are a couple examples you can give us from the first three voyages of the East India Company where punishments like capital trials and even mutiny by the men occurred while at sea? So for most offenses, men were punished with floggings or time in the irons or, or demotions and fines. But for felonies like mutiny, murder, and sexual offenses, company commanders had the power to conduct shipboard trials and execute offenders. There was a mutiny trial on the very first voyage. The man was found guilty by a jury condemned to death by the general. But his crewmates begged for mercy, and the offender was pardoned. There was a bestiality trial of a gunner's mate on the third voyage, and the accused was found guilty of a lesser charge and whipped rather than condemned to die. The dog wasn't tried, uh, although that sometimes happens uh, ashore, that, uh, that the animal is tried as well, but it wasn't in this case. So these examples and others later on indicate that there was more mercy than the letter of the law would suggest. So this is true of the English justice system on land and at sea. And on these voyages, human resources were rapidly dwindling. So if an offender was contrite, his life was frequently spared. And this was often the case for mutineers in particular. Because mutiny was an umbrella term that could involve any number of major or minor acts of insubordination. And certainly tempers flared when people were at sea for long periods and cramped and stressful conditions. And commanders understood that. And while they'd probably suffer some nasty corporal punishments, most mutineers escaped the noose. So some of these commanders seemed like long-suffering parents, but they were very much like 17th century parents who did not spare the rod. And I think that these trials were, at least in some cases, performative. They were designed to demonstrate the extent of the general's powers, and the condemned were reprieved to show the general's compassion. And when the crew lobbies for the condemned to be pardoned, the general appears benevolent and responsive when he grants the appeals to his men. So even though commanding officers had these very augmented powers from the, the crown, like so much else at sea, dispensing justice was a negotiation. It's a conversation. 
And looking at the first 20 years of the voyages, it was only the very worst of the worst who were subject to the noose. Well, I know we would love to explore the history of the first three voyages of the East India Company happening in the early 17th century and just to find out more about what life was like and the laws and the food and the budding science of it all. And I was wondering if you could recommend some books or resources for our listeners if they are interested in this topic and want to learn more, where should they begin? So if people are interested in primary sources, so records that date from the period, Some of these ships' journals have made it into print, so you don't have to travel to London to the British Library, although that's obviously a wonderful thing to do. But the Hacklet Society has published a number of those journals, and the the point is to make those accounts more accessible to, to everyone, so not necessarily scholars. And for the really ambitious and daring you can see digital copies of some of the company's journals online. So if you check out the Qatar National Library webpage, uh, you can pull up a number of East India Company journals and check out the 17th century handwriting that looks like very strange scribbles sometimes. It can be very daunting, but uh, if you want a challenge, you can definitely do that. And if you're looking for secondary sources, so what historians are writing about the topic, there's a lot of really interesting work being done on the company right now. So although most of it focuses on the later period when the company was a commercial and colonial powerhouse, there's work being done, you know, all across the board on, on the company. And there's a, there's a number of us working on the, the very early years of the company. So I would recommend two books by Richmond Barber. There's one that he transcribes the journals from the third voyage, and there's a number of them. And then he adds his very insightful commentary. And then there's he has a more recent book that tells the story of the loss of the trades increase, which was on a very disastrous six voyage. And if any of your listeners want more information about where to find those sources, they, they are welcome to, to contact me. My university email is just a Google search away, and I'd be happy to answer any questions they have. But maritime social history in general is such an exciting field to study right now. And it partners so well with other fields and subfields of history. So there's lots of new areas of inquiry, such as, you know, the history of disability, of mental illness, of emotions, clothing, soundscapes, spatial history, and that's just naming a few. So when it comes to seafaring people, We are asking new questions of our existing sources and coming up with a more detailed picture of life at sea. And we're also learning lots from maritime archaeology. So divers have brought up all manner of artifacts and sometimes even the ships themselves. And this includes skeletons that that we can study. So dead men do, in fact, tell tales. (laughs) So we're learning lots from from English wrecks like the Mary Rose, like the London, and and now the Gloucester. So this field has come so far since I was an undergraduate student in the late 80s and, and early 90s. 
maritime social history is is just hopping and as is the larger tent known as the blue humanities i think that's such a generous offer cheryl for the listeners to be able to list reach out to you with questions on this topic. I know some of them will definitely take you up on that offer, but don't worry, we will place links to Cheryl's work and you you don't have to go Google search. You can visit the show notes. We'll have a direct link to where you can reach her as well as links to the resources she's mentioned today. So if you'd like to explore this topic further, you'll be well set up to do that there. Now, Cheryl, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, well, I guess I could really use an idiot's guide to surviving on a desert island because I don't like my chances at all. When it comes to the great outdoors, I'm at best a glamper, uh, not a camper. So I would need that. But if I have another book that I could choose, it would be one of my favorites and you know, largest historical fiction books, which is Margaret George's The Autobiography of King Henry VIII. That is an excellent choice. I, I love the the double book choice there. Yes, making sure the necessities are covered and then having a book you would enjoy reading while you were spending your time there. I think you think you'd covered all your bases there for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm working on a chapter on shipboard compliments and executions for a forthcoming Oxford University Press volume called The Oxford Handbook of Travel, Identity and Race in Early Modern England. And it's being written by a global team of scholars at all stages of their careers. And I absolutely can't wait to see the the finished product there. And I'm also working on a book that examines the relationship between diet, disease, and disorder in the early English East India Company. And so that will hopefully uh, be finished in 2024 for Boydell if the writing muses are kind to me. That sounds exciting. I can't wait to see that get published and become available. Thank you, Cheryl Fury, so much for being here with us this week and sharing with us the history of what life was like on the first three voyages of the East India Company. I really appreciate your time and I thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. If you liked the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a rating and a review on the podcast platform you're listening from today. For a few extra tidbits of in-depth history about the first voyages and the East India Trading Company, including some portraits of the captains and masters of the ship that you heard about in today's episode, along with direct links to the resources Cheryl recommends and to Cheryl's work where you can dive in and learn more about this exciting part of history, be sure to visit the show notes for today's episode. The show notes is where we pack in all of the extras we can't share with you on the audio, along with a few extra things I found that I just think you might like. Find out more at CassidyCash.com slash episode 247. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP247. That Shakespeare Life is made available completely commercial free and without any sponsors, thanks to the support of our listeners like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patrons get studio level updates on the making of our show and have the opportunity to contribute to programming. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.